thank you very much. Good evening, folks. My name is Don. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm delighted to be here. I certainly want to thank the committee and Jim and the people responsible for the invitation to be here and to participate. And welcome to any new people that are here this evening for their first, second, or third meeting or first week around Alcoholics Anonymous. You've now made a giant step forward. You've now associated yourself with the most popular or unpopular fellowship in the world. Nobody wants to get to Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't think. Uh, and I can only speak for myself. Uh, if you're new there, I know what you're going through. Uh, I know that I didn't want to end up in Alcoholics Anonymous. I know that I didn't go down to my high school counselor and he said, Norm, what would you like to be? And I said, man, I'd like to be an alcoholic. And he said, that's right here in the class. And I took it and tore him up for 15 years and here I am. And that wasn't the beginning. But if you are an alcoholic, if you've got a drinking problem and you are new, you never have to take another drink again as long as you live if you don't want to. This is entirely up to you. And what you're going to find here is the same thing that I found here. I found a group of people who are going to know most everything about you yet will still accept you. They're not necessarily interested in where you've been and where you're going, but they're real interested in what you're trying to do today. And what you're trying to do today is the same thing that I'm trying to do today. I'm trying to stay sober. And we have the sobriety here in Alcoholics Anonymous. As to why or why not uh, I'm alcoholic, or incidentally to uh, qualify that beginning statement I made to the new people here tonight, I am an alcoholic, and I'm not by any stretch of the imagination an authority or a consultant on the program Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm an example, good or bad, that AA works. But it has been necessary for me to take a drink, steal anything, and go to jail now for 16 and a half years. Uh, I don't believe anybody out there tonight is really overly, overly impressed with the amount of time I've been sober, but that's not important because, man, I'm impressed with the amount of time I've been sober, you see. Not only that, you never know when they get a pension program going here. And if we ever do, I'd like to get credit for all my time, you see, so you got to keep bringing this up from time to time. If there are new people who are sitting out there tonight, I know that you find it very difficult to digest when you hear a guy stand up there and say he hasn't had a drink for 16 years, but I know just how you feel. Because I sat there in my first meeting and I heard a guy say that he hadn't had a drink for nine and a half years, and I thought he was the biggest liar I'd ever listened to because I couldn't visualize, I couldn't believe that anybody out there on those streets was staying sober that way at the time. Because when I checked into the program, he says, man, you got to be honest, and that sets you back right there. And you got to get out there and meet your responsibilities, and you got to stay sober. And that guy's been doing it for nine and a half years. I came in like a lot of people. I had a lot of heat on me, and there were some things that I wanted to look over, and I thought maybe there's an off chance I might get up and go back to whatever I was doing, which I didn't like before I got here. But in the back of my mind, I thought it might be possible that this might happen, you see. I couldn't visualize a long period of time of sobriety. Well, I didn't hear that guy say that night was that he'd been doing it one day at a time. And that's exactly the way it's been for me. By trying to work this program to the best of my ability, one day at a time. I live in one day at a time, saying sober one day at a time. The weeks run by and the months and the years, and pretty soon you stand in front of a group of people in Colorado and say, hang out a drink of 16 and a half years, and it seems just like yesterday. It seems just like yesterday that I sat there, I was 29 years old, and I wondered why I'd been selected to be the alcoholic of my family. I come from a family of heavy drinkers, you know. All my people drink, and I'm the only alky in that whole outfit. That just upset me, you know. We're Irish and Italian. We're not too great, but we know a little about that booze, I'll guarantee that. We know how to make it, and we know how to drink it, and my people are still out there making it and drinking it, and I'm the only alcoholic. You see, and I sat there and think, I'm the best they got. Why should this happen to me? Because yeah. I have a dozen other people in my family should have had this thing, and I couldn't understand why this should happen to me. I felt, well, you know, being born and raised in L.A., that's got a lot to do with it. Everybody knows anybody from L.A. has got to have something going against them. You know, you can't be too sharp. Maybe L.A. is my problem, but L.A. is not my problem. My family is not my problem, but I, a whiskey was my problem. I'm alcoholic because I drank too much whiskey. That's the reason I'm here. Now, I don't, to my knowledge, have any deep-seated emotional problems, and I go to one of those guys to find out, I'll tell you that. So, whiskey seems to be my problem. I've got a, a personality problem, if there is such a thing. I've got a personality that kind of lends itself to alcoholism. Uh, I'm a rationalizer, a justifier, a compromiser, and I've got a rotten attitude. And you don't need much more than that, you see. i got that phony outlook on living. I travel half the world and half my life making a complete ass of myself. 
I spent money I didn't have, my things I didn't need, but I don't spend a lot of people I didn't like. And that's the story of my life until I got down to Hollywood. No doubt about it. I spent a lifetime out there impressing the human race and I could be all things to all people. I can sum it up by very shortly when I said, I'm the guy you find out there, you know, in LA, it was about a hundred when I left LA, and I'm the guy out there driving around town in my car, I got all the windows rolled up because I want everybody to think I got an air conditioner. <laughs> I spent a lifetime out there trying to impress them. Today I see these guys driving around town with the windows rolled up. You know what I think? Jesse or Jesse? <laughs> a lousy alky out there trying to impress me. You're going to afford three hundred dollars. But I spent all of those years out there trying to be all things to all people. And I came to the program and I come to find out that I never really knew what I wanted to be until I got here. And all I wanted to be is to be able to spend the day being myself. It's a gratifying experience, by golly, for an alcoholic to be able to spend the day just being him. When I'm out there drinking, uh, I was so many other people. Uh, I get a charge out of folks to say, you know, alcoholics, they aren't really too bright. And basically, they're lazy. But a full-blown alky, when he's out there in that jungle, you know, he has got to be with him. Because you've got to work at it. And you've got to remember a lot of things. Like, where were you, for example? <laughs> and what was I when I was there? And don't go back, for God's sake. You probably promise you're going to pay him some money, you owe him, you see. No, an alky out there, when he's in that jungle, he's all these things. The guy says, well, now, what do you do? Well, I'm a general manager, a vice president of the corporation, I'm former my owner, I'm opening the business, I'm all of these things, you know. And you get to the program, you walk into the door, and the man says, don't impress me here, buddy. We in AA have been impressed by experts around here. You don't need to impress anybody. I made the fatal mistake earlier in the program of throwing the guy to him a can 25 times, and he was hysteric. He said, hell, I did it in a year. Yeah. No matter where you've been, somebody got there long before you did. No matter what you drank, there's guys drank more of it. The only way you can win an AA is to be last. You know, it's good talking to somebody because you just can't make it, you see. It's gratifying to be able to come in here and spend an evening just being myself. It's gratifying to be able to walk down the street and all i got to be is me. I don't need to be all of those other people. All I have to be is be myself. The program brings you no more than sobriety in the way of life. And occasionally day to day to be able to stand out there and just be normal. You see, I'm overpaying. This evening, I'd like to talk a little bit about what I was like, what happened, what I'm trying to be like today. Not that I'm here necessarily from L.A. to try to impress you on about a whiskey that I drank in L.A., but I don't know a better way to talk about the program. When a man says to me, well, how does AA work? Well, AA works if one drunk talking to another drunk between the two of us, we stay sober. What I was like, what happened, and what I'm trying to be like now, this is what the program means to me. There's some times things that I use to stay sober over a period of time. I told you that I've had an attitude problem, and I've had an attitude problem all of my life, and the attitude problem started getting me into trouble long before the booze. I opened up the Midnight Auto Supply out there in the San Gabriel Valley in the middle 30s. The Midnight Auto Supply business for myself. The Midnight Auto Supply consisted of car parts that we were stealing. It started out with hotcats, and I found out, you know, you can make a little money at it. And please, it's kind of branched out. Instead of just getting a hubcap, why we'd get the hubcap and the wheel and the tire. And then we put on a little help and started getting the various accessories, like the radio, the heater, and the motor, and all you do, you can take off the car. But then it got to be such a job together up on that crap, we stole a whole lot of them, you know, and overnight, you know, I think, branched out. And for a year and a half, I operated out there, and it was a marvelous experience, and I had signed every love and bit of them. I was cut for it. I've always believed God gives everybody something, you see, that's what he kind of handed down to me, was a touch for the business. I, I never lost a moment's sleep over over anything I ever took in my life. I felt if a guy jerky enough to put his car out there, he was asking for trouble, you know, it's just that so I was kind of cut for it. I could stand here and talk about it all night. But if you've never laid on the floorboards of a man's car and you're getting his radio out and your buddy's out there at the time walking, he's dead. No, you got about three minutes, that guy's coming out the door. You know, you pow, that instantaneous exoneration. God, it's living. You know, you just kind of sweat and you die and you live. It's like that of whiskey, you know. Early in the morning, trying to get well. It's a synthetic existence. It's a way that I refuse to buy the package of lemon. I want it on my terms. I bucked it out there for years. It's got to be this way or it isn't going to be any other way. I remember when I was arrested because this business I was in was illegal. When I stood in front of a judge and was faced with seven years of winter reformatory because I couldn't get along with the people on the outside. 
Yeah, I stood there in front of that gentleman that morning and was congratulated within myself that what I had done was really not that bad. Because what I was taking was for people who could afford it. And I rationalized that, you know, kind of steal from the rich and keep it, like old Robin Hood, you know. And I felt I'm a victim of unusual circumstances. They don't really understand me. But I went out to do the time. There were some circumstances, there were some people running in L.A. in the 30s, that if you do somebody, you do somebody, you can work a deal. But we were Irish and Italian, and needless to say, we knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody, and we kind of worked a little deal out, and I came back in. About 30 years ago this year, about approximately 1940, for the first time that I was ever drunk in my life. Rose had never played a big part in it. I was an alcoholic from the first time I took a drink or the first time I got drunk. I worked at it. It was Easter week. And all the guys in L.A., they still do it. They run down to the beach cities and they go down to Newport and Balboa and they drink that booze and get a little drunk and go down to the rendezvous ballroom where the big band play there and just have a big time. Nothing serious. Got a little sick and beat up a couple of times. We're drinking that Padre there with a nickel a bottle. And it wasn't a bad deal. But it took a lot of us to get to go. And I kind of moved on. I went from Padre to the old Greendale Patel, Rainier Ale. And from Rainier Ale, I moved into whiskey. And when I got the whiskey, I found the greatest state made that money and girls. I was up in the state of Oregon, and I was running around with a bunch of guys who said, you want a drink? And I said, yeah. Being a true, true typical alcoholic, if somebody offers you something to drink, you never shut it down. You say, yes. You know, you don't stand around and have a long conversation about what you're going to drink. You say, yes, I'll have a drink. And they was drinking that can high. Now, that can high, and it was rough. I didn't even know can high was bad whiskey until I came to AA. You know, you got a big education after you get here. But it was rough. God, that baby burned all the way down. And we stand there, and the guy said, isn't that good? Good, that's good. Yeah, you know. Burn going down and coming up again. You know it. Oh, man, what state there? It was the answer to living. It put me into that land of booze and fantasy. Disney was late. When he came out with that, it like, because I have lived there all of my life. I enjoyed that dreaming. And that whiskey was a vehicle that put me there. It made me all the things I wanted to be. That can I made me good-looking, well-built, intellectual, wealthy, and I got the job done in two hours, and it's the best deal I ever had. Sixty-five cents in two hours. I could be all of these things. You know, I checked into the program, I come to find out that when you were drinking this cheap whiskey, it had other great advantages, too. A man told me one night, he said, you know, Norm, when you were throwing that up, you weren't losing a lot. And that makes a lot of sense today. Because if I was out there today drinking that nine dollar bourbon and you're watching that thing go up, oh, nine dollars, you know, God, that's enough to make you sick all over again. You see, but sixty-five cents, the guy can do a terrible thing. You're taking out the hog to think of that. You know, I didn't think of it, but I drank that booze that said, uh, because this is what it was available and put me where I wanted to get. It got me into that fantasy land. I didn't have to face the real life as it was out there, the reality of living. Well, I left Oregon. I came back. The reason I was in Oregon is because I got in the jam in L.A. and I run out because it was a violation of my probation and I got in a little trouble in Oregon, so I ran back to L.A. And it was January of 1942. We were at war. Uh, I was in a state of shock. I turned into the probation department and my people worked to deal out and I went into the United States Navy. I went into the United States Navy feeling it was the lesser of two evils. They said, jail or service. And I went into the service, and it was another one of my bad decisions. My life has been filled with bad decisions, you see. Because what had happened, all of the enemies I had in L.A. joined the Navy the same day I did, you know. And it was kind of crazy. I was just here at Christmas Eve in 1945. When I got back to L.A., they were all there. You know, we all got out the same day. But I come to find out, after a few years, now the Hawks and is the only enemy Norm ever had. It's always been one guy that's been Norm. Because everywhere Norm goes, Norm goes. You know what I mean? All of the problems and all of the trouble I got at this age, oh, it's right here. It's amazing how well the street is when I'm well inside, and that same street looks lousy when everything's going wrong inside. This is the guy. When this guy's in line, everything else seems to be in line out there. And of course, in January of 1942, I didn't understand that. Went into the service, thinking, you know, everything's going to be different now. Get in the service, I'll probably be the youngest lieutenant commander the Navy ever had. And they truly understand what they got here, because it turned out I was the oldest seaman they ever had, you know. I just couldn't stay out of it. And whiskey's playing a bigger and bigger part in my life. In a four-year period of time, there were three court-martials. I got a deck, a summary, and a general. 
that General, the highest that they had to offer at that time, you know. When I was awarded the General Court Marshal in the beginning, it kind of gave me a sense of well-being. I was the only guy on that ship that ever had one. And they used to point out, there goes the biggest, you know, we ever had. Here's a typical alcoholic, you want to be noticed. And if you can't be noticed for being good, be lousy. But man, you got to be lousy or anybody else. You say, well, I admit it. And I, you know, kind of felt pretty good about that deal until they transferred me to the ship. And they put me into the brig there in Jager Island. I laid around there and I went to trial and to read off and I was given 11 and a half months in a Navy prison up there on the top of Goat Island run by the Marine Corps. And I'm not even going into that. That was a bad deal when I was there because I took me and my lousy attitude with me. And I was there a couple of months before I realized when they said jump, I ought to. You know, they, I was not there because I had won any personality contest. I was there because I committed a crime against the United States Navy. And I was fortunate in the respect when I went for clemency, I was restored to duty and I finished up my term. There were some other miscellaneous things that happened. There was maybe 70, 75 days in solitary confinement on bread and water. There was maybe 12, 15 captains mass. But that's all unimportant. And I was just charging back out. And as I mentioned, boozos played a big part. My life now seems to revolve around drinking and drinking people. I'm looking maybe for the answer to living in that quart of whiskey. Once too many and a thousand aren't enough. Somebody told me that once or twice by then. People and the friends that I had said, no, I'm, you know, you don't drink like the rest of us. Why don't you knock it off? You know, you're lousy when you drink that booze. But I don't want to believe it. People say, would you like to go to a party? you got to qualify it. What kind of party are you talking about? If it's a dry party, I want no part of it. If it's a booze party, fine, I'll go. So my life now is revolving around this whiskey. The invisible line, they speak about alcoholics anonymous, I now do it or over it and start again to the area where there's no return but won't believe it. Because I sincerely believe I'm a victim of unusual circumstances. He's got the food to surrounding people. If we ever get the human race straightened out, isn't it going to be fine? Thank God that never happened, but I believe you know, it's them out there, it's not me. Well, I came back home in 46, I checked in to see my mother, and I... Went through the same routine this time. I feel all there was a little more sincerity in it. I said, baby, you never have to cry again. Not for me, because I'm going to be like the old man of my brothers, and I'm going to straighten out. I'm going to make restitution. I'm going to make amends, and I'm going to get off this booze, and it's going to be all right, and you're going to be proud of me, and you never, never have to cry for me again, because it's going to be okay. And I'm going to get this thing going pretty soon, or later on, or tomorrow, whatever I said. I knew that I couldn't get started right then and there. Because right then and there, you're tired, or you're sick, or you're remorseful, and you're going to do it later on, and up here I think I'm going to get it done. And the only reason that I bring this up in the event that there are some new folks here, you came into your first, second, or third A meeting, why everybody that comes in, there's a certain amount of garbage you bring with, with you, everybody brings in a cross, some large, some small, and they sit down, and they go through the 12 steps, and they want to get out and make amends. In a physical sense, sometimes it's a man that you want to make the greatest decisions available. In this particular case, this woman was, my mother was killed in the car wreck two years before I got to the program. Never saw me out of a jam from the time I was 13 when I was 27 years old. And as I sat there as a new person in those meetings and they kept saying, you go on out and make these amends and I want to do it. And it bothered me a lot. And I couldn't move it out until one evening I heard the serenity prayer. I probably heard it a hundred times before that, but I never really heard it. Except the things you cannot change, Norm. And I couldn't change this fact for all the money in the world or the prayers or the tears. This is the way it is. Now, why it had to happen that way, I really don't know, because I haven't the background, the understanding, the education, or the vocabulary to explain it. I only know that God moves in strange and mysterious ways and things are going to work out, and that's the way it is. I don't believe it's a rationalization on my part or your part. It's garbage of the past, you got to move it out. The wreckage of the past, you move it aside. If there's nothing you can do about it, move it out. If there's an amend to be made, sure, go do it. I satisfy myself with them knowing that, you know, nobody's going to go forever. Someday they're going to hang me out to dry and I'll make the shot and check in and say, baby, I'm sorry for all the trouble I caused you, but it got better after you left. Because I met a group of people and they called themselves Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're new here this evening, there are certain things you're going to have to move out. And that year of 46 is so very vivid in my mind because 46, I just couldn't stay out of trouble. If I wanted to straighten my life out, I couldn't have. Because I couldn't stay out of trouble. Every alky has got a town that picks on him. Mine happened to be Pasadena. God, I hated that town. But yet, I'd find myself back in there time and time again. No matter what I said, I did, yeah, I'd be back. 
I used to think they had an alarm to set them on around the city limits. And every time I crossed over, it went off. You know, because he's out there, the any judge, and they got me. Same judge. I knew this judge, you know, when he was, you know, he was shagging delinquents. That was me. I met him when he was sitting on the police court bench and, you know, looking at drunks. That's me. He was a smart operator. He called the ticket. He got up to the superior court bench. But I'm going to be there, man. I'm right there with him, you know. One more time. Sure. Same guy. We just kind of, as I say, grew up together. I knew about as well as I knew my father. <laughs> that year, I got picked up five times in this city. The fourth time they armed me was on a 502. I went and told him, he said, a year at city jail. Suspended three years probation. Boy, I left this cart roll with that, oh, that side. Oh, I'm never coming back to that lousy town again. Oh, because I knew that judge. The one thing I knew about him, he had never lied to me in his life. When he said 30, 60, or 90, whatever it was, I'm always done. He said, you get drunk one year, I knew it. I'm a half-smart Alfie. I think I'll stay out of his lousy town. And I did for a couple of months. And I was drinking in the perimeter there. But one evening I was drinking with a couple of friends. And I committed the cardinal sin. While I was drinking, I began to think. That's a bad deal. You should never drink and think at the same time. Because I got to thinking about that rotten judge in that lousy town. And this is a free country. And God knows I'm a veteran. Yes, you are right, that. <laughs> What's left to do? I jumped in my car and goes 72 miles back to that city. Went down to a joint called Green Terrace, got up on the stool, met another friend of mine, we closed it, going down Green Street, drunk, 2.30 in the morning, the car pulled in front of me, I was drunk, I couldn't see, and I hit. And that moment of pure, whatever it is, the fright or the fear of knowing you're jammed up, and you're rock, you know, don't stay, get out of here, you know, no one can stay around that you can do it, get out, and I ran from the scene of the accident. Three blocks later, when the police are pulling me over the side, where did they come from, I don't know to this day. They jerked me out of the car, put me in there, cut me, take me down, locked me up in the felony tank. Wake up in the morning, go through that search and seizure program, you know, looking for the fucking side. Why am I in here? And then load me into the elevator. Man, with a bunch of other drunks. Getting that huge bourbon back and forth in there, man, that's a deal. Three floors up, they kick that elevator in the high gear and that baby drop. You whoop, right here. Then walk down through that courtroom and stand up there in front of the judge, and there's always two stories. What you tell your buddy, you told the judge, but what you really told him, you know, don't do it, buddy. And oh, the fears are coming. And I'm standing there in front of him, and he says, a 501 felony drunk driving, hit and run, bodily injury involved. And I couldn't believe it. I didn't say, thank God that I didn't kill anybody. I just couldn't believe that this could happen. And the things that run through your mind is, well, why is that guy on the street that night? Well, he got no business out there in that car. They turned in front of me. God moves in strange and mysterious ways. No matter what you do or you don't do, this is the way it's going to work out anyway. For example, I swore to God I'd never go back to that city, yet here I am. In the wee hours in the morning, there could have been a half a dozen cars out there. A guy pulls in front of me, bam, I hit it. And I go to jail, stand in front of the judge. The judge sends me to do time. 140 guys are doing time in that city jail. Out of 140, one guy gets out of the bucket once a week to go to AA meetings. Guess who I pull to share the time with? I could have had 139 other guys. Oh, I get this fanatic to go to AA meetings once a week, you know. Oh, he used to upset me. Once a week, he'd go to a meeting and he'd sit there after he'd go to one of the meetings and he'd start telling me all about this AA program. He finally got some bad where he was going to fix it up that I could go with him. And I tried to tell him, I said, son of a, you don't understand, buddy, whiskey's not my trouble. I drink pretty good whiskey. You and your lousy brothers, that's a different case, but not me. And I'm too young to be an alcoholic. You, you're different. And you're 36. Yeah. When you get to be that old, you know, that healer talking about you're on the downside of it. You ain't quite drinking because there's really not much left with people like you anyway. You go ahead around with your boozy buddies, and I'll take care of the action when I get out here. But no AA for me, no. I don't believe 36, you know, is so old, being 46 this year, you see. But then, of course, it was altogether different. Then I don't need it. And the point I'm drawing is that this thing that moves in mysterious ways, the seeds planted. Eight and a half years later, I picked up the telephone looking for an outfit called AA and a guy named Solomon. I found the program, but I never found Solomon, not in the sober sense. When I found him, he was in Camarilla Hospital. 
Because after three years of sobriety, he went back to drinking and he drank up his mind. He just couldn't quit. He couldn't shut it down. He met him before he was 40 years old. It's unbelievable to think that anything that takes as sweet as that whiskey can tear a man up that bad. Let me talk about it in chapter 3. <clears throat> so the gates of insanity are death. And I don't know why it has to be this way. Maybe it's the percentage that they talk about when you check in. They said, 50% of you guys are going to grab it the first shot. 25% of you are going to mess with it a while, and eventually you're going to make it broke. 25% of you are going to die, go crazy from the use of alcohol. And maybe that's the way it's got to be. I can't believe the guys like him to make it possible for people like me or us to be here to see. I only know that there are a percentage you have seen that I have seen. We hope we never have to see another one. But that's the way it seems to be. He's the guy that planted the seed, the program, the jest, the wreck, and the whole thing. All of these people play an important part in my life. When I went out for eight and a half years, I worked as hard as I could to get to AA. In that period of time, I went to work for one of the biggest construction firms in the world. I was fortunate in the respect. I wasn't canned outright. I was able to finish up 11 years with them and resign and go on into a different field of business. But in that eight and a half year period of time, it was just kind of worked out and I was cut for it. We were in a concrete pipe business. We had 20 operations going in the five western states. I was able to make them all. This has a lot of advantages. When you get the heat on in one city or state, move on. You know, you think you can take the heat off there and you can start all over again and everything was going great. About that time, my fire associates had told me one of my biggest problems was that I was single. Well, I'll settle down and get married and everything was going to be all right. They also said, don't go off half cock on that deal. Make sure that woman's got a decent job, you know. <laughs> this all sounds reasonable. <laughs> Things are really going my way. About 1947, I'm running around with a red-headed Irish girl and we decided to turn the trick. She's got a fine job and everything is wonderful for two months. I came home after two months, and she said, I've been to the doctor that I'm pregnant, and I have to quit work. The doctor told me to quit my job and get off my feet. Now, that really shatters an alcoholic. You know, to go against something that you don't believe. And I stood there thinking, how could this happen? I'm even thinking maybe another doctor might be calling me. But she assured me she was home free. Well, after an alcoholic, you back right up against the wall and you got a very big heart. You know, and I thought, well, now that, that gave her takes about nine months. I'll give her two to get on the feet. Then we'll get the rotten job back. Then everything's going to be just like it was. Have you ever said that? It's going to be just like it was. Yes. That was 23 years ago and she hasn't turned a tap since that day. She got herself an SN eight times. I couldn't believe it. Instead of a locust coming in, she's going to St. Luke's every other year. And I'd sit there on that bar stool and think, how could this be? I'm rarely home anymore either. And you go on and on with this thing. Not only that, her being redheaded and Irish, she had a violent disposition and a real mean temper. And I'm a lot different than most of you guys there tonight. I happened to marry a girl that never really understood me. Never realized how sensitive I was. Still here, another sensitive alcoholic here tonight. Out there drunk for three days. Coming home and I'm tired. God knows if you've been out there three days, you're tired. And you're, you're coming on in and you're tired and a little sick and a little drunky too. And you walk in the house and what do you want? I want a little love and affection and understanding. And our conversation would start out the same way each and every time she'd say, You're drunk again. And how does she know? How did she, she used to know when I was drunk when I'd call her on the phone? I'd look around, who's telling her, you know? I couldn't understand how she always knew that I'd been drinking. A Sunday, for example, I was standing there, a guy opened my eye up, I got tried blood and sat on my face, my shirt's torn, and I got one shoe on, and I'm trying to figure out how the hell she knew I'd been drinking today. And a marvelous story I was trying to tell her about falling out of the automobile or something like that. Well, I'd have to end this, sometimes that happened when I had one of my best friends with me. Did that ever happen to you? He's the guy you met in the saloon last night. Your new business partner invited him home. The reason he's coming home with me is, hell, he don't want to go home alone either, you know. There you go. Line leading the blind. There you are. You ever see a couple of Alkies standing there in the front room? There you are. You know, just kind of 
pops the well belt. Bringing that drink up when you notice your arm. Lord, you kill him. 150 pounds ringing lip. I couldn't lick my lips about that. You know that? God, that whip keeps running all out, and I'm a lover and a killer. And I'm sitting down there on the end of the bar wondering why all the dollies aren't there. I got that $50 suit on, and I got $10 worth of bourbon all over the club, and a little mustard on my necktie. I haven't had a bath in a couple of days, you <laughs> see. I spent 15 years out there looking for my girlfriend. But I came to the program and I got sober and I went home one day and I found her. She was my wife. They done a hell of a deal. I spent all of that time, the story of the alcoholic, all of that time and all of the bad work looking for something I had all along. And that seems to be the story of the alcoholic. He's out there, he's looking and he's drinking and he's searching to find something that he's got to have. And generally, he had it all the time. What he had was good for him, but he didn't know it. And he came to the program, and he found that out. The big price spent all that time looking for the girlfriend that I already had. It's remarkable. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I never ceased to be amazed. But I sat there on that bar stool time after time and night after night, to the point where I'd fall off, or I'm opening the door with my head on the way out to the automobile to go to bed. The old car sleeper. You can tell a car sleeper in his first meeting in AA. He's the guy sitting there with that, you know. You're having your head screwed under the armrest all night. Boy, when the sun comes down through the windshield at 6 o'clock in the morning and it hits you right between the handlebars, that's called a spiritual awakening before AA. Is there any feeling like waking up in the front seat of your car? No. The door handle stuck in your ear and you're sitting there in that front seat with a, you know, the, oh God, your mouth tastes terrible and your teeth itch. And you, you look down there on the stage board and you heave on that baby last night. Or you thought the window was down. It was up. Oh, all over it. Uh. There's something like drinking. Oh, I'm having a good time drinking. Yeah. Over my part, John, years ago, I heard the champion of all car flavors. He used to sit there and get under his naked shoe out, sit and throw up at him. You know, people often wonder what he's putting on. Make a hell of a story, wouldn't Anyway, I went through that car sleeping and sitting there thinking, drinking fun. I'm having a problem, though. I've got to get out of L.A. That L.A. whiskey's killing me. I gotta get back down to Big Spring, Texas. God, they love me in Big Spring. Or was it El Paso? Or Dallas? Or Fort Worth? Or maybe it was Phoenix or Tucson or Moses Lake, Washington or Seattle or Stockton or Presto or on. It was always the same because I refused to believe it was a whiskey with something else. I refused to make the complete circle the circuit. You complete it. If I had to look back and take ten seconds of my life and look back, I would have seen each and every time I ever drank it always ended up the same way. And each and every year it was getting a little bit worse. Somebody's working me over. I'm laying on the parker there. I'm laying in the drum tank. I'm calling the old man saying, get a hundred and a half down. We're going to make bail. I'm calling my wife saying, baby, don't go to the airport. I haven't left yet. It always ended the same and never changed. But I kept trying. Thinking somewhere, someday I'm going to drink like the guys I'm running around with. Someday I'll drink like my old man or brother. Someday I'm going to find it. I'll change from bourbon to rye, to scotch, to gin, to back, and I'll find it. And as I ran through the lottery of my living and life, that whiskey took away every loving thing I had in anything in my life. I remember the day that I went home and I walked in the house and the red said, Get out, Norm. You're a drunken bum. You'll never live to be 35 years old. You're drinking yourself to death and me and the kids don't want to be here at the end. You're not going to drag us clear down to the end of the line. Clear to the gutter. We're neurotic because of you. I'm scared to death of you. I never know how or when you're coming home. You're going to shove the refrigerator through the wall. You're going to take the gun out and put it against my head again. Man, I'm sick of sitting here night after night. I'm sick of dying every time I hear a sign run down the street and then God the police catch you again. But this time they find you laying dead out there in the middle of the street and you're never coming back. I'm sick of hearing the old kids scream at you for you not to hit me. I'm sick of the remorse, and I'm sick of the lies and the promises you can never keep and you get out of our life. I'll always love you, baby, but you've torn out all the feeling. I've got no feeling left for you one way or another. And you walk down the street saying to yourself, it'll never happen, it'll never happen, it'll never happen. 
But if you drink enough whiskey and you work hard and long at it, it always going to be. Sure, there's isolated cases where people put up with this crap for 30 years. Can you imagine living with an algae for 30 years? 30 years plopping in and out of the house. 30 years of picking up the pieces. 30 years of lying. 30 years of those promises. 30 years of telling people, don't come over, he's laying in there with a the flu or something like that one. Four years, he's laying dead drunk on the kitchen floor. 30 years, I'm sure it does happen. But we don't guarantee it's going to be that way. When I checked in, they said, the only thing we have in Alcoholics Anonymous, my friend, is sobriety and a way of life. And if you're a ditch digger, buddy, you're going to be a better ditch digger. We don't guarantee you're going to make a ton of scratch and got a big iron or live up there on the hill in a big old house or that woman's ever calling you home or the kids will ever appreciate you. That may never happen. The only thing we have for you here is sobriety and a way of life and whatever you're doing, you're going to be better out. No more, no less, but that's a lot more than I had before I got here. And I would have settled for that in the beginning, sobriety and the way of life. But as whiskey took away the family, and then one day, shortly after that, maybe six months or later, for sure, <clears throat> my boss called me in the office and said, Norm, you'll never leave L.A. County Force again. We're sick and tired of you out there in those outside jobs and we're picking up the pieces. And the next time I catch you drinking on the job, you're through, you're finished, you're out. And I was humiliated that day. A guy, an old Mustang, had come up the hard way with the general manager of this multi-million dollar corporation. And I respected him as much as my father, and he sat there and told me that. And I left his office with that humiliation that you and I understand. Alcoholics know an awful lot about humility because they've been humiliated so many times. And I remember sitting there in that gym mill that night after that experience and drinking that booze and saying to myself, how could he do that to me after all I have done for him and that lousy company? How could he do that? I'm going to fix him. I'm going to quit. Yeah. Oh, my own company. Yeah, then I'm going to run them out of business. And then he's going to come down to see me for a job, and I'm going to say, I remember you. Get out of here. And I had another drink, you see. And I had another dream, and I built another castle. And I woke up in the morning, and the sense of well-being that I experienced for a few minutes was gone. And an old friend of mine was back to see me called Remorse, and he did tar and he did. And I went out and had a little more to drink to put it down. And about that time in my life and living, a man walked into my life and he says, Norm, you've abused the privilege of owning it and you've got to have it. And he took away by self-respect. The finest commodity that a man will ever own is his self-respect. He may lose all of his material gain and it means something. But the day that he sits there and finds he has no respect for himself, that's when he took the big one out. The day when you sit in that fire store and you look in that mirror and what you see is lousy. So the morning you wake up and you brush your teeth and wash your face, you look at you and you see it loudly. And you can't tolerate to look at yourself because you've got no self-respect. The day arrives when it's really not important any longer what the human race knows about you. But it's a very important thing what you know about yourself. But what you know about yourself is really lousy. And maybe this is the day you'd like to change it. Maybe this is the psychological second that each and every alcoholic's life when he's sick and tired again, sick and tired, and he don't know it. He just knows that he has no respect for himself, and he's tired of the way he's going. And he's tried all of these other things. And I picked up the telephone and called AA. AA in Los Angeles at that time. A guy named John Carroll answered the phone. John died after him over a year and a half. John was one of those many people in the program you hear about who found out early in order to keep what he had, he had to give it away. And he used to sit there in that old L.A. Central office working for peanuts, giving away what he found. But that was February of 1954. He gave me the thumbnail sketch of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he gave me a couple of names to call. And the second guy he called, he came out to see me. And he said, you got a drinking problem. I said, i got a drinking problem. And he started to talk to me. Now, I was one of those fellows who was blessed with hitting one of those hard-hearted sponsors, you know. Went to school for hard-hearted sponsors. This guy, you know, he sat there and he told me a lot of things and he upset me no end. And I got to the point where I really didn't like him. And the only thing that I really agreed upon was when he said, if I can do it, buddy, you can do it. And I thought, if that old jackass can do it, hell, anybody can do it, you know. Yeah, he upset me. He said, you know, I don't pick anybody up and take them to me because I don't believe in it. He said, if you want what we have and you want it bad enough, you've got to be willing to go to any length to get it, which means get off and get going. I went to any length to get my whiskey. I lied for it, cheated for it, conned for it, stole for it, any length. He said, in retrospect, any length to get it. If you haven't got a car, you'll have to take the bus. If you haven't got money, you're going to have to walk, right? 
And I'll be down there at the old Temple City Grove and I'll meet you. And I'll take you down and introduce you around and I'll take you to a total of three meetings and get you started. Well, I throw my car down to the old Temple City meeting and hope you'd be in that parking lot and I could run over a neighbor or something. I went down. As I mentioned before, I went down to that meeting and I was sick. I was sick as a lot of guys, but I was sick enough. I was 29. I hadn't been a long way, but I had been as far as I wanted to go. I never had the DTs. I've never been to a state institution. I've been 25 years in prison. Some other this way, you see. But I've got a little parallel, but no, uh, you know, nothing real big like they talk about in the program. But I had been as far as I wanted to go, which they told me about. I didn't know that that night, but I got a lot of heat on. And that curiosity is bringing you in. Well, I walked in there to that meeting, and what do I mean? I mean, 85 of the finest drunks that ever came out of San Diego Valley. What are they doing? They're all standing around, everybody's talking. You know how it is. Drinking that lousy coffee. This is one of them wealthy groups you hear about in AA. We had so much money in that group, we have donuts before and after the meeting. As you can imagine anything like that. And I was introduced to the sense of you or the alcoholic immediately that night. They used to buy a half a dozen jelly donuts and they saved them for the new guy. Yeah, they see a guy coming through the door, he's green and really hung out in his man with a glass of beer with some like that and a jelly donut, and they showed it to you, you know. I don't want him to do that. No, I'm looking down to something I left out there last night. You see, how I know that? And everybody continues to talk and laugh. Did you see him? I thought he was going to die. Joke out that green, wasn't he? Yeah. I don't think that's very funny. No. And another guy comes up. We used to meet next to a cemetery there. A the cliche of the group used to be, if we don't get you here, we're going to get you there. And everybody laugh about it. What's so funny about that? If you're new, you don't even know if you're going to quit drinking or not. This guy's telling you to keep drinking. He's going to die out there. Ha, ha, ha. That was very funny. And the thing that I really couldn't understand was that nobody ever got to finish anything. Every time you know a guy got to the punchline or some conversation, somebody interrupts. Everybody's always interrupting everybody. As I look back now, maybe that's what they tell you to keep coming back. I don't know. I might be wrong, but... Hell, you never hear the end of anything in that area. Everybody's always interrupting you. Keep coming back, though. You know, for sure. I sat down there in that first meeting, and this guy stood up in front of that group, and he was nine and a half years sober. And I couldn't believe he'd been nine and a half years sober. And I may have just believed everything that guy said there that night, but I couldn't just believe how he looked. Boy, and he looked sharp. And he was clear-eyed, and his eyes sparkled and snapped, and he smiled, and he laughed, and he was happy. And he had a set of threads on that run him a hundred and a half. And I'm thinking, man, if he didn't get nothing else in this AA outfit, didn't he get us on a great job? Yeah. Oh, and I am impressed with how this guy looks. Which I believe proves the point, Pastor. Shout him out. That 90% of the people never remember 90% of what you had to say, but they never forget how you luck. No. And I never forget how this guy looks as he stood up there in front of that meeting, and he's got the finest head on I've seen in a long time. And he didn't get it anywhere else. What he had, he found it here. Well, I have good, bad, or indifferent. I didn't get it through my family, the courts, the doctors, the friends, the family. I got it here. Whatever it is, it's more than I had. And I got it right here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe that guy in East Timmy Speaker, I ever heard his friend tell you, what I have, I found it here. We may go out a little different. But what we found, we found it here. That gentleman talked that night, how did he talk? He talked about all the joints and the jails and the problems and the trouble he had. And every time he talked about going to jail, somebody beat him up. The audience was hysterical. Funniest thing I ever heard is guys getting beat up all the time. Great Jamaican ginger, getting the jig like, gripping him up so bad to put him in a hospital for two and a half months, and they were hysterical over there. And if you're self-centered and egotistical, I am nice man there saying, it's God, so they need me. Yeah. <laughs> They don't know what's going on in there. That guy's dying. You know, they're all laughing about it. And then he got to the point of this conversation where he said that his woman had divorced him and his kids is gone and his woman remarried and they would never get back together. But over a period of time and years, the children of this married one by one come down to see him. And they learned to love him and respect him and appreciate him. And I had the foresight to look around at him. I've probably seen a half a dozen guys all choked up, maybe a tear or two in their eyes. And they told the story of A.A. that night. 
They laughed because they were miserable and they cried because they were happy. And we call it Alcoholics Anonymous. How do you clear away the wreckage of your lousy past? You never laugh much before you get it. You keep it all inside and it turns and tears you in a pieces. And the only time you ever feel a sense of well-being is when you're sitting in that bar and drinking yourself under that patio and you get one more to stay even. And it puts you down to shoot and you just did it for a little while. That sense of well-being is only just a little thing. <clears throat> you only feel it for a while. But you come to the program and you make this total transition. You get that sense of well-being by being able to feel happy because another guy is happy. You laugh, sure, because of the misery of it and because you don't laugh too much before you get and then you sit there laughing, you're moving away the wreckage of your past. And then you cry because you're happy for another person. That is the beginning in my life. I'm a taker. All the alcoholics I've ever known in my life are takers. You stay out there and you take. Have a ball with women. I laid out there and I took on a stole. And I thought I was winning, but I never knew what it was to win. Until I got to the program and I learned to give. From the day I gave for the first time, I had that sense of well-being. It was the first time I ever felt good within myself. It was only sitting in a meeting and getting all choked up emotional because another guy is happy. Because the guy stands up there and says, my kids respect me, and I'm happy for him. And in my life, I never felt nothing for nobody until I sat there one day and felt happy for another guy because he was happy. Or I saw a guy uh, stand up in front of a group and he's getting a year <clears throat> of sobriety. And he's trying to tell everybody out there how it is. You know, he's all choked up and he says, I had a drink in a year. And he's trying to tell you what that year is all about. And he said, I had it this good in my life. And then he can't go out of that. The air he's choked up with the tears coming. You're sitting there in the audience. You tell him, Charlie. You know what he's feeling. Tell him. And you've got that feeling for another guy. And it's an experience. And it's a transition. And it's something I never knew in my life because I laid out there and I talked. And I came to the program and I learned to give for the hell of it. You pick up that ice tray, you make the 12 step call, you go to central service, general service, it's doing the work. Doesn't the way you give for the hell of giving. There's no compromise kind of giving. The giving and you want nothing back, not the giving of where you get a dollar and you want three. This is just a giving for the hell of it and it's the only thing really that's important. The only thing that's important for you and I, and we know this because it's been passed down through the years, the only important thing in life and living is what you give away. The material bank you build is nice, and I won't fight. But the sense of well-being you get from just the pure hell of doing it for the hell of it is something that is astronomical. I can't explain it. I don't have the background to the understanding. It's that feeling when you walk down the street and you feel so damn good. It's that insurance policy you build up within yourself. When the days get rocky out there, you can stand and be counted. Sure enough. And as I look back to think that after the second meeting in AA, I almost give it all up. I almost lost the whole thing. Because the second meeting I went to with alcoholics and others, I went naturally over to Pasadena. Where else? No. I walk into that group and it was the old timers group. Yeah, the guy that was doing the speaking that night had been sober 137 years. Why, old timers, you know. You know what I'm talking about. And I'm sitting there and I'm the new guy. And he stands up in front of me and he's got a big, big picture of himself. It's a blown up mugshot taken up when he was doing time in the old L.A. County Jail. And the point that Artie was trying to get across was, look at me when I'm drinking and look at me now. And I'll look at that picture and I'll look at Artie and say, look at her junk. No doubt about it. This AA outfit ages the hell out of people. I've got to get out of here, you know. I went on down the street and the next day I went out and I bought a pint of whiskey. I took a drink out of it and I threw it away. And from that day to this, it hasn't been necessary to take a drink. And he asked me why. And the only real conclusion I can come up with why is that I got a big ego. That I didn't want that sponsor of mine to think that I couldn't go to three meetings without drinking. And the old saying of go to a lot of meetings is a lot of validity in it. Because at that third meeting I went to, I met a bunch of guys all in my same age group. One guy was named Roy was 26. I was 29. I met Stan, he was 32, and Chip was 33. And a couple of other guys were in their 35, 4, and 35 year age. But we all kind of got together. And we all kind of started going to meetings together. And we'd all sit there and criticize the other groups, you know. And all the old-timers, we criticized them, too. We didn't like them at all. And we were sure that these other groups had formed a lot of cliques. 
So we formed our own clique to be against the other cliques. You know how that goes. And then the day finally arrives when one of us has had sobriety enough in order to run for secretary of this particular group. And old Stan, he runs for secretary. And he makes it. And we thought we were in. But he joined the other clique. Yeah. <laughs> but you keep coming back, you know. That's the only important thing. No matter what brings you back, you just keep coming back. And God, we used to sit out there after the biggest drinking coffee or somebody's house or one of the retinas till 11, 12, 1 o'clock, and we spent the whole time just hating everybody in that group. You don't know. But we kept coming back, and all of us are sober to this particular day. So there must be some validity in what they say. You've got to go to a lot of meetings. You've got to grab a home group. You grab the home group and build the insurance policy within yourself to be able to stand out there in that lousy jungle and face your responsibilities like all of us. When the days get heavy, when the rope falls in, and nobody says it's going to be any different, I'd like to see every day to be a holiday and every meal to be a banquet, but that's not the way it's going to be. i got to stand out there and be counted like the rest of them. And the heartbreak and the disappointment is going to come. I don't like it, but that's the way it is. In 1962, I stood out there and said, Christ, why me? God, why me? Haven't you hammered enough? What you're asking to carry is too big. I can't make it. I forgot to remember within myself, God will never give you more than what you can pack. He cuts the big ones for the big boys, the small ones for the small ones. And mine, in proportion, you see, was very small. Instead of standing there crying a poor mouth about what he'd ask you to carry, or what he didn't give me, I should have taken a second out of my busy life to look down the street. And I'd seen a man carrying a load ten times the size of I. And the only difference between he and I is that he learned to carry his with great dignity. He didn't stand and cry the poor mouth about what he didn't get, you see. He learned to appreciate, to know, to remember who he was and where he come from and what he's got. What I have. What I got, God's going to die and never see. You know, I've had 16 and a half years walking down the sunny side of the street. There's going to be guys that I'm going to see 16 nuts. So, hell, I'm overpaid. There's going to be guys that are going to die over there in that street of booze and fantasy and frosted dreams and broken hearts and tears on a bucket ball. They'll never cross over and walk down the sunny side. And on the sunny side of that street that I've been walking down for 16 and a half years is my self-respect and the respect of the people I work for and do business with, and the respect of that red-headed woman, my woman, and all them bandits who live up there at my house. And I am their old man. And nobody, but nobody cried at my house this week because their old man was drunk and torn up. I haven't heard a kid of mine scream at me for years for him not to get the mother. I haven't had to wake up on the kitchen floor Sunday and everybody's getting to go to matters I can't make it. And they all stand around crying because I'm their old man. I watched them go from little ones into big ones, and I'm respected. Today I took my old one of my daughters downtown a few years ago. I bought her a first pair of high heel shoes. And we walked in that store, she was nothing but a chicken. And she put on them shoes and stood up, you know, and she was a ever-loving woman. And I looked at her, and she looked at me, and we got that feeling, that sense of well-being, that respect. I respected her for what she represented, and she respected me for what I was, her old man. And the son that's a ball player, and a couple of them that went to school. And the daughter last August that I got married. 350 people are sitting in that church, and me and her, just me and her, you know. And we're walking down that aisle, and I'm giving her to this big jackass she's going to marry. <laughs> There's a feeling there a moment where you digress. As it is if you stand in a room full of people when you're out there boozing, drinking, and lonely God is the alcoholic. You stand there in a room full of people and you're all by yourself. You come to the program and you buy the total package and you're part of it. But I look out there and there's 350 people and some of them I didn't know too well and some not at all. But I thought I'm part of you all out there. And God, if you really only knew what this was all about. And I walked on down, and I felt part of that toll. Something I had lost had come back. I saw a few of my friends from time to time. And they really knew what it was all about. And they were my friends, and but for them, none of that would have been possible. 
In closing this evening, I, I like to read you a little letter. I've only read it once before. I don't believe in reading things in AA. But this letter came to me last August. And it says, Congratulations on another wonderful year towards AA. I can't begin to count all the times your achievements and Alcoholics Anonymous have entered my life. I'm awfully proud of you, Father, and very happy. Times like this, it is hard to find the perfect words to tell you all I feel. Maybe you can read between the lines. You people who are new here this evening, maybe you can read between the lines, between the laughter and the heartbreak and the misery that is away. Alcoholics Anonymous, God love you.